So we're in Luke chapter 11, looking at verses 5 through 8, the story that John read for us. It's, I believe, on page 735, if you're using the uh, seat Bible. And I want to start with a, a question this morning. How many of you have prayed at some point this past week? Just nod if you have. Do you remember some of what you talked to God about? Do you remember um, what you asked God for, asked God for, some of it anyway? Do you know there are some things that we can ask God for that it would be shameful for God to refuse? After all, God has a reputation to uphold. I don't know if you're like me, but often when I pray, I forget who I'm praying to. I get wrapped up in my concerns, my wants, my hopes, what I'm asking for, and I forget who I'm asking all of this to. I lose track of what God is like. And that's why I appreciate what one preacher said, that learning to pray is not so much about saying the right things as it is about speaking to the right person. Often when I pray, I forget who I'm speaking to. I forget that I'm praying to my good father who wants to give me good gifts. I forget that God loves me and wants me to have not necessarily what I want, but what's best for me. But do you know, even if God were not my good father, even if God was not a friend who loved me, even still there are some things I could ask God for that God would give me. There are some prayers that I could pray which God would answer simply because it would be shameful for God to refuse. After all, God has a reputation to uphold. This is the point Jesus is making in the story that he tells in today's passage. And it's a truth that we want to reflect on together this morning. To start with me, imagine that it's one in the morning. You're suddenly awakened by the sound of tapping at your first floor bedroom window. Then you hear a familiar voice. It's, it's a friend who lives on the next block, and she's calling your name. Still groggy, you whisper back, what? And your friend apologetically explains. She's in a pinch. A, a good friend has come to visit her. She's just arrived a day earlier than expected, as it turns out. And your friend doesn't have any clean sheets for the guest room. They're all in the laundry, and so could you lend her a set of clean sheets? Your mind races. Your sheets are in the closet in the baby's room. The baby is a light sleeper. What do you do? (laughs) Do you help your friend? If so, why do you help her? Because you want to? Because you love your friend? Or because you feel you have to help her and it would be impolite to refuse? These are the questions and the inner motives that Jesus wants to stir up for us as he tells a story very similar to this, a, a parable, the one that we read this morning. It's often called the parable of the friend at midnight. In this parable, Jesus continues to answer the question that his disciples asked him back in verse 1 of Luke 11 when they requested, teacher, teach us how to pray. Now, this parable probably made perfect sense to Jesus' first disciples. But for us, it's one of those passages of Scripture which is more like a pineapple than an apple. What I mean is that an apple is easily accessible. You, 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 know, you shine it up, you, you bite right in, and you get an immediate payoff. 
But, but a pineapple is more work, isn't it? In fact, you know, they have, uh, as seen on TV, gadgets and gizmos to try to get into that pineapple because you've got to saw it, you've got to skin it, you've got to core it. But if you like pineapple, the sweet, juicy fruit is worth the effort. And if you don't, think melon or avocado or something else. <laughs> well, anyway, that's what this parable is like, as we'll see. We're, we're going to have to spend some time this morning to work on it, to try to understand it, to get at that sweet, juicy juice. <laughs> we're going to have to figure out some of, uh, of what some of the original Greek language actually means, how to translate it, what the culture of that day was like, so that we can understand what Jesus is getting at here. And trust me, the payoff for our effort will be worth it in the end. Because there's been a lot of discussion in in recent years about what this parable means. And and most of the reason is because verse 8 is very hard to translate into English. And and yet it's the punchline of the parable, and so it determines how we understand the whole story. If you look at a bunch of English translations of verse 8, you'll notice that in the older translations... It was rendered that it was because of the persistence or the boldness of the one knocking on the door that the guy inside gets up and gives the friend at the door what he needs. For example, the the, uh, version that John read for us, which is the, the Bible in our seats, it's the 1984 New International Version translation. It says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Well, newer translations don't translate it this way anymore because we now know that that's not a good translation. You see, the Greek word here, which in case you're interested is pronounced anaidion, we, we now know does not mean persistence or boldness. Now, there are two big problems we face in trying to figure out how to translate this word well. The first is what this word anaidion means. And the second is that it's not clear in the original language whose anaidion Jesus is talking about. Is it the man in bed's anaidion? Or is it the guy outside the doors, Anideon? Because literally, verse 8 reads, Yet because of his Anideon, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Because of whose Anideon? Which guy's Anideon causes the man in bed to get up and give bread to the guy outside? Some of our English translations answer this question for us in the way they choose to word the English, but the original Greek is not clear. You've got a pronoun without an antecedent. Your English teacher told you not to do that. <laughs> are, are you following me? Does the, the man in bed get up because of his own anideon or because of the man outside's anideon? Well, let's tackle the first question first. What does this word anideon mean? Some translations translate it persistence, others boldness, Others, shameless audacity. Others, shameless persistence. Yet others, importunity. And all of these translations are struggling to find a suitable English word because the truth is our culture, our Western culture, doesn't easily grasp what this word anideon means. Because what it actually means is shamelessness or shamefulness. The quality of acting shamefully because you have no shame. What we have to remember here is that Jesus' culture was a shame-based culture. 
In Jesus' culture, people were motivated by a desire to avoid shame. Now, we're not motivated that way as much today in the West, at least. We're motivated by a desire to maintain our rights, our freedoms, our independence, our desires. But back then, and still in many Eastern cultures today, people's greatest motivation was and is save face, to appear honorable in the eyes of others, to avoid being ashamed. I once read a a newspaper article um, about the recession in Japan back in the 1990s, which which hit Japan really hard. And, And it described how at the time, the parks and the hiking trails outside of Tokyo were crawling with unemployed Japanese businessmen. You see, they were too ashamed to tell their families that they'd lost their jobs in the recession. And so each morning they got up into their suits as usual. They took their briefcases and they went to work. And then they hung out around the parks until it was time to go home as they used their cell phones to try to find new work. And that sort of culture of avoiding shame and maintaining your honor are overriding motivations. In international relations, we Westerners constantly have to remind ourselves of this, whether we're dealing with Iraq or Beijing. Because if you're from a shame culture, to maintain your honor amongst your nation, your allies, your family, your neighbors, your village is as important as life itself. And to be shamed, the worst thing that could happen to you, it's bankruptcy, and you avoid it at all costs. And so if we're going to understand this parable, we're going to have to read this story and hear this story through the lens of shame and honor. That's what this word anideon is about. It has to do with acting in a shameful way. So that raises the second question, which is, which of the two men in Jesus' story is in danger of acting shamefully? Is it the man outside? Would it be shameful for the man outside the door to pound on his friend's door, waking him up and maybe half the neighborhood in the middle of the night? Or would it be shameful for the man inside, in bed, to refuse to get up and give his friend some bread to feed his guest? Well, to decide which it is, we need to understand more about the culture in which the story takes place. And so I want to make five observations about Jesus' culture. Okay, first observation. This story takes place in a culture where hospitality is a fine art and a high value. In Middle Eastern culture, you treat your guests like royalty. You, you roll out the red ca- carpet. You put on a spread. I don't know if you've ever experienced a culture like this. I haven't been to the Middle East, but I've been to Romania and Hungary and have lived there. And they feed you there, and they take great pride in it. I remember my first day as, as a college kid on a mission trip um, in Romania. I was starving after a long trip. I was always starving as a college kid. But I was starving after a, a long trip um, to, the, to the village that we were headed to. And, and when we arrived at the house where we were to stay, the lady of the house served us soup and hearty bread. And, and it tasted good, and I was so hungry. I had two or three bowls and several slices of bread. And, and then when I was good and full, they brought out the main course, <laughs> to my surprise. <laughs> There was meat, and there were potatoes, and there were salads, and then there was dessert. The food just kept coming, and, and these people had hardly any money. That's how cultures like this operate. When you arrive, you have to eat. 
And even if you refuse, the host is obligated to feed you and to put out a spread which is more than you can possibly eat. Second observation. In a small Middle Eastern village, hospitality toward a guest is the responsibility not just of the host, but of the entire village. The whole village takes great pride and responsibility in ensuring that their guests have a great stay and go away speaking highly of the village. No village would ever want the word to get out that a guest stayed in their town and was put to bed hungry. So everyone is expected to pitch in in whatever way is needed to provide hospitality to a guest of the village. Third observation. The man in this story who's asking his friend for bread needs more than just bread. Have you ever eaten a Middle Eastern meal? Maybe uh, Greek food, Israeli food, Lebanese food. Bread is just the utensil you use to get the food to your mouth. There are lots of other dishes which everyone shares, maybe stews, maybe sauces, maybe hummus, tzatziki. And the way you ate it back then was you'd tear off a piece of pita or flatbread and you'd use that to scoop some of the food from the dish to your mouth. Bread is just the most basic and simple ingredient for the meal that the man in our story needs, but he needs a lot more than bread. Now, in that day, there were no 7-Elevens where this guy could go late at night to get bread. The only bread in the village was what the women baked for their families in the common village oven. Every few days, a woman would go and bake a few days' worth of bread. And evidently, this house is out of bread on this particular night. So while the wife is busily gathering gathering together tabbouleh or some lamb stew or whatever, she says to her husband, we're out of bread. But I know that Rebecca baked yesterday, so go over to their house and ask for three loaves. I'll make it up to her when I bake new bread in the morning. So this guy slips out the back door on his errand. Who knows what else he needs to get from some of the other houses. Maybe some yogurt, maybe a nice tablecloth, maybe a candle. People shared a lot in those days. They had to. They were poor. And as this guy sets out, he knows that his fellow villagers will provide him with everything he needs to honor his guest with a wonderful meal, even in the middle of the night, because to do otherwise would be shameful. Which leads to the fourth observation. And that is that what, or that is what would happen in Jesus' culture to the man in bed if he refused to get up and help his friend provide hospitality on behalf of the village. If the man in bed refused to get up and give his friend bread, the man who needs the bread would have to knock on a different neighbor's door to get bread. And then on other doors, if he needed other things as well. And as he went, he'd most likely apologize profusely and tell how he'd been turned down by the first man, his friend. And the scandalous news of the first man's lack of hospitality would be all over town by morning. And think of the shame. The first man's name would be mud. His reputation would be ruined. He would be bankrupt. And so given all of that, let's go back to our question. Who is acting shamefully in this story? Is the man outside who needs bread acting in a shameful way by asking for a little bread, though it's late at night? No way. 
He's doing what's appropriate to do, what he's expected to do. Nobody is going to fault him for it. His visitor must be fed. He must be fed well. The whole village's honor depends on it. Everyone is expected to make sure that he has all that he needs. So then who's acting shamefully? Well, I'm convinced that it's the friend who won't get out of bed to help. And who offers lame excuses about his door being locked and his kids being asleep. This becomes more clear when we make our last observation. And that is that Jesus' whole parable is a rhetorical question. A lot of translations paraphrase verse 5 this way. Suppose one of you has a friend. But I think the old King James translation got it right this time when they translated literally. Which of you shall have a friend? It's a question. Which of you? Which of you would have a friend and go to him at midnight and ask him for some bread to feed your guest and he would refuse with lame excuses? Which of you? In Jesus' culture, there's only one answer. None of us. Of course not. It would never happen. Why? Because for a friend to act that way would be shameful. A nighty on. And Jesus says, in effect, in, effect, in verse 8, Yes, exactly. Even if your friend wouldn't get up and give you everything you needed because he was your friend, which he probably would do, yet even if he wouldn't, certainly he would help you because of his anideon. Who's anideon? The man in bed's anideon. The anideon, the shamefulness that he would be demonstrated if he failed to get up and help you. A shamefulness which would bring shame on him before the whole village. His, his desire to act or to avoid acting shamefully would motivate him to get up and to give you everything you need. I mean, look at how both men speak in Jesus' story. The man outside begins, friend. He explains his need and his reason for coming so late. But look how the man in bed responds. Not friend, or I'm sorry friend, but don't bother me. Don't bother me. And then he gives what it seems to me are lame excuses for refusing to help. The door is locked. My kids are in bed with me. And then he ends with, I can't get up and give you anything. Doesn't it bug you when people say they can't when the truth is they won't? (laughs) And so who's acting shamefully in this story? I could see how in our culture it might possibly be the man outside. We're, We're used to our own comforts, our own rights. Others are expected to fend for themselves. I mean, I could picture this scene in the old TV show, The Honeymooners, right? Uh, Norton comes downstairs and he knocks on Ralph's door in the middle of the night. (laughs) Ralph, can I borrow a stick of butter? A friend dropped by. We want to make popcorn. (laughs) And Ralph instantly has steam coming out of his ears, right? (laughs) Norton! (laughs) Do you know what time it is? Do you know what time it is? Do you think this is an all-night truck stop? (laughs) Get out of here before I turn you into a stick of butter. Right? In our culture, we might kind of be sympathetic to Ralph. Norton is being rude to wake him up for such a trivial request, but not in Jesus' culture. Jesus' culture, it was a duty and an honor to get up and to help, and to rudely refuse to do so was utterly shameful. That's why the new uh, 2011 NIV translation... offers uh, this translation in verse 8 in a footnote, which I think points us in the right direction. Yet to preserve his good name, the man in bed 
will surely get up and give him as much as he needs. Or actually it says give you as much as you need. To preserve his good name. To avoid bringing shame on his name, on his reputation. The man in bed will get up and give you all that you need. So Jesus concludes, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. You see how this parable relates to prayer? Like the man knocking on his friend's door at midnight, so ask God, seek from God, knock on God's door. Even if God was not your good father, though he is. Even if God was not a friend who loved you, though he is. But even if God was not, even still, there are some things you can ask God for that God will give you. There are some prayers you can pray that God will answer simply because it would be shameful for God to do otherwise. After all, God has a reputation to uphold, just like the man in the story. Are you following? Jesus is teaching us how to pray here. He's telling us this story to remind us who we are praying to. And to get us thinking about what we can ask God for. That God could hardly refuse to give us. Because to refuse us would be shameful. After all, God has a reputation to uphold. So that gets us thinking, what are some of these prayers we could pray? What sort of things might we pray for which would it, it would be shameful for God to refuse? Well, the Bible gives us plenty of examples. It gives us stories of people who understood who they were praying to and who they had put their trust in. They understood what God is like and how eager God is to maintain God's reputation and to see that God's name is honored in this world. Think of the young boy David who risked his life standing up to a giant warrior named Goliath. Why? Because Goliath was mocking God's name. And David believed that God would defend God's own reputation. Or think of the prophet Elijah, who who believed the same thing about God, and so he risked his own reputation by publicly asking the Lord to send down fire from heaven to prove that the Lord and not this other God, Baal, was the true God. And again, Elijah knew that God would not allow himself to be put to shame. Or how about Moses? Remember when when Israel rebelled and they worshipped the golden calf that they'd made with their own hands instead of the God who had rescued them from Egypt? And God was going to leave his people. He was so heartbroken and betrayed and angry. But what did Moses pray? God, if you leave us, what will the Egyptians say? How will the nations know that you're great? What about your reputation, God? And so God answers Moses' prayer. God remains faithful to his people. And that's how Jesus is encouraging us to pray as well. He's saying, let me tell you what my father is like. There are things you can ask God for that it would be shameful for God to refuse. After all, God has a reputation to uphold. So what else can we ask God for? Well, Greg Howe introduced us last Sunday to some of the things, right, in verses 1 to 4. Jesus tells us, for example, we can ask that God's name be hallowed. In other words, that God's reputation be honored and held up and esteemed. 
in various situations. Because surely God doesn't want anyone to be able to say, God's too weak to do that. Or God doesn't keep his promises. You can't count on God. Or God isn't good. God is cruel. God is fickle. No. God doesn't want people to be able to say that. Also, Jesus tells us we can pray that God's kingdom come. That God moves into situations and brings healing and deliverance and reconciliation. Those things that God desires to bring. Because surely God doesn't want anyone to be able to say, God's abandoned us down here. God doesn't care about this world or what goes on down here. Further, we can ask God that his children get their daily bread. For surely God doesn't want anyone to be able to say, God doesn't even take care of his own children. Are you getting the idea? And so Jesus says, like the man at midnight, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened because everyone who asks receives. Everyone. Not just those whose friendship with God is everything they feel it should be, but everyone. Not just those who have come regularly to church lately. Everyone. Not just those who've been praying hard enough or long enough. Not just those who've been on good behavior lately. But everyone. Why? Because there are some things you can ask for that it would be shameful for God to refuse. After all, God has a reputation to uphold. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this story. Thank you for inspiring Luke to record it for us. So that we could know more about who it is that we pray to. God, I pray that um, you would teach us what those things are in our lives and in our world. That we can ask you for which it would be shameful for you to refuse. Because God, we know, we believe, as you've reminded us this morning, that you desire to uphold your reputation and to show the world how great you really are. In Jesus' name, amen.